Dishing It Out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Cully and Sully. Tastes like homemade. Grab a Cully and Sully for soup season. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. So welcome to another episode of Dishing It Out with me, Gareth Mullins. And myself, Gary O'Hanlon. And this week we're going to be delving back into a little bit about Gary and I's career again. Uh, we're going to be talking to you a little bit how we write menus, how we come up with that type of stuff. Little bit of travel, I think it's a very important part of how we get inspiration for food and also obviously it's a huge part of Gary's life because he's cooking over in another country in another city and then a little bit of behind the scenes of having to come up with well I, I do a recipe every week for radio and Gary is I'm sure like me getting constantly asked for recipes for different platforms be it magazines newspapers tv radio whatever it is and something that you don't automatically think about when you decide to throw a white jacket on and become a chef But first of all, we're going to give you our gadget of the week, and I'm going to pass the ball over to Gary straight away. What have you got this week, guys? Actually, do you know what I'm going to go with? And, and it's a it's a wee dough scraper or a bread scraper, whatever um, name you want to put on. I just call it the scraper. I don't know. Is that for your Instagram reels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you, I, I probably, because I, as you just mentioned there, like I'm always abroad or not so much over the last while, Like, but I, I don't get into, I never get into the sourdough buzz. I do like... Bacon breads, but I love. Excuse me, you got into it, but it wasn't very successful. I think. No, you told no, me no, once. no. I, ne- I actually never. I've never. I've never, I've never made a. I've literally never baked a loaf of sourdough. Stop. Never. Not no one. Way. Not one. Big Joe, horror, right? Went to college with Big Joe. He's got Benny and Co and Bob Buffet. Unbelievable chef. Unbelievable baker. I mean, wow. every sandwich that you get in Joe's place, he makes nice the bread, bread, right? Big Joe, as as I affectionately know him as. Big Joe has given me more starters than I would say he <laughs> And cared. a starter is not a shout out for a fight, just so yeah, <laughs> for the yeah. Northsiders in Dublin no, listening. A starter for anybody <laughs> anybody that's made any sourdough, it's basically it's it's that fermented, you know, dough based flour and water. Flour and water is oh. all it is, yeah. Flour and water time and a wee bit of ambient temperature and whatnot. Joe's given me a jar of starter, I'd say four times now at this stage, right? And I never had the manners to make even one loaf out of it. And uh, I think it's Riot Rye, what do you call it, your man? Is it Joe Fitzmorris, is it? Yeah, that probably one of the, like, the best bakers that the country's ever seen. I know Joe would have done some banking down with him. So his starter would have originated with right. Joe, I think. So obviously he kept, he's yeah. kept feeding that starter for 20 odd years now. And uh, anyways, I do love though, making focaccia I do love making pizza dough maybe a Guinness bread like in Viewmount House we had a very famous bread it became like famous anybody that came wanted the recipe we used have you to ever just... shared that recipe? oh yeah yeah okay. of course yeah I mean I'm not one of these people that think I mean it's just it's a loaf of bread you know what I mean but it, it's an expensive loaf to make and sometimes you know when customers are getting it for free as part of dinner or whatever, like then they're like going, geez, I made that loaf of bread. I goes, I mightn't make it again in a hurry. And I goes, yeah, well, uh, you know, bear in mind it's sitting there beside some homemade butter along, say, yeah, yeah, exactly. two or three other breads every day. And it's the hidden costs of the hidden table. The, the hidden costs of fine dining or any kind of dining, really, you know what I mean? But no, but a scraper is invaluable whenever, you know, you're you're tipping out the door, you're knocking it back, you're scraping it out, it comes out of the bowl and you're moving it. And you just basically want not to be leaving any of it behind you. And then 
if you decide to make wee burger buns, whatever it be, it also just turns into like a sort of a blunt knife for a yeah, better proper. expression where you're not going to do too much damage yeah. to your account. I have whatever the surface is in my kitchen tops. I don't know the name of it now, but I can literally cut into it. It doesn't scrape at all or do whatever. So it's all nice and speedy. But that wee scraper, it's a wee blue handled scraper. I have. I love it. I really do. I think anybody that does any kind of bacon should have it's one. It's also handy for a little bit of uh, when you're working on a chopping board, like for lifting onions up and peppers up yeah. or leeks up or, and dropping them into a pan. It's like, that's some They're brilliant for that. In fact, you'll see a huge amount of Instagram reels. That's what I was asking. Yeah, where people, that's what they use them yeah, for, yeah. actually. Yeah. You know what I mean? What they really are is there's an Australian guy, you might know him from your time in Australia, but he's got a huge following on. Yeah, is it Andy Heron or Andy yeah, yeah, Heron yeah, or something? Cool page. He. He's got a great page on Instagram and he loves the scraper and that's all he ever uses. I think he has a branded one now. Probably Probably just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's not using it for the good of his health anyways, I would imagine. What about you guys? What have you? So my one, I'm drawing a bit of inspiration from the last one that you've done with the wok. So a little bamboo steamer. They're like 15 or 20 euro. If anyone's trying to charge you more than that, don't give them the money. If you get down to the Asian supermarket, I think they might even be a little bit cheaper than that. But they are better than an electric steamer. So an electric steamer for me are good, you know, or you can buy ovens now for your for your house that they have steaming components yeah. and all. Great. But I'm telling you now, the best way to steam a piece of fish or a vegetable or a chicken press or whatever it is, is one of those bamboo steamers sitting on top of a wok. I use them in my professional environment yeah. and I also use them at home. And if you ever want to get into the, the world of making like bell buns or steam buns or milk buns or anything like that, those little steamers are fantastic. And you want to tread really carefully. There's a lot of counties in Ireland with hard water. And if you've got a wired up steamer plumbed, like an oven that's plumbed, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody living in the west of Ireland or any chefs in the west of Ireland will I'm tell too you much this here. A, a dumb for that guy. Yeah, I know, but the, you, probably, you probably don't have the problem here, but a mm. massive amount of Ireland has a serious hard water problem and if you've ever seen the back of a combi oven come off the back of it honest to god the whole thing will come out it's like a it's like a concrete paving Stop. slab so after about four or five or six years if that water isn't filtered and really you're not supposed to be drinking or cooking with that kind of water anyway this goes through a filtration system to the best of my knowledge but if you have that hard water problem, those ovens get destroyed very, very quickly. There's a buildup of lime scale and there's no fixing them. You know what I mean? Yeah, so a little a little bamboo steamer. One little trick I will say to you, if you're ever going to be steaming a piece of sea bass or a piece of salmon or anything, put a small little bit of parchment paper underneath it because it does tend to stick a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I just find it gives it more life. But they're really, really handy bit of kit. And the time of year that we're in now, January, and we're all trying to eat a little bit cleaner and all Tell me that. this, do you put any aromatics in the water underneath? It, depending on what I'm doing, I do this. I find, ste I find steamed fish or steamed food I don't want to say bland but uh, yeah maybe I will say bland you know, you know it can be you know you've got to be really nifty with the seasoning one of my favourite dishes to ever make and I'm going to name drop here is uh, Ken Hom you know Ken yeah, Hom yeah. Uh, the, I've the, done a gig with Ken Hom yeah so he yeah. when I worked in the Marion he, he used to come here and he showed me how to do this piece of steamed sea bass and it's the simplest thing mm. but it delivers so big on flavour I can actually taste it now so all you do is you put a piece of sea bass down on a piece of parchment paper a real real fine little matchstick julienne of ginger a little bit of spring onion and a little bit of chilli on the top and then you steam it for four minutes and when it comes out you heat up a little bit of vegetable oil till it gets nice and hot and you pour that over and it kind of scorches the top of the ginger uh, and the yeah. skin and then you just dress it with a little bit of uh, sesame oil and some soy sauce and I swear to God it's so delicate 
so delicious yeah. and it really feels like it's came through a pair of chef's hands. Yeah. And for, I think I shared that recipe years ago on the six o'clock show or somewhere and I remember meeting somebody and they saying to me, it really felt like I was eating in a restaurant and it's the simplest of yeah, techniques yeah. but really where the magic happens in a, in a simple dish like that is obviously choosing a really fresh piece of sea bass but that yeah. little steam and it, it can be I mean, I mean it's almost like cooking on papi load in an yeah, exactly. whatever. Exactly. A, a two star French chef came to the chateau with a prep I mean I can't say who he was with but it was a client and he had a, he had his own chef the, this guy literally had paid, his own two star with him he paid for him to <laughs> shut down his two star restaurant because he didn't want just the staff with him he just wanted this guy Jerome Lagarde right old school bocus dude came through the, the toughest of French kitchens you ever seen and me and him really really hit it off right but I spent four or five days with him and after like one of the first day and I was a wee bit standoff he's, he's in my kitchen but look that that was the gig anyways he did this dish right it was almost a means of steaming uh, heck but on, like it was it was Popped within pu- no it was in puff pastry right so he had the oven set to a temperature he had this thing in the oven right for a few hours and I remember one time I was like Jerome surely you you got to turn it off now you got to take it out he goes oh no chef it'd be fine it'd be fine I guess that's your crack right but it was a miso it was a miso brushed heck and the minute you said julienne vegetable right Jerome popped into my head so all the way this was a whole side of heck right and we had a julienne of fennel carrot leek white of courgette white of leek yep. the whole way down seasoned the whole nine yards the heck was miso brushed and then we wrapped it in puff pastry. It was in the oven, and then it was ready. And then he says, right, we'll leave it on. We just had it sat there at 90 degrees, right? But it's still encased in the pastry. We, 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 we were doing this dinner, right? We were like eight or nine or ten courses, whatever it was. So the fish course was kind of coming up, and I just thought, what is that fish going to look like <laughs> whenever he cuts into it, right? It was still my chateau at the time when I was yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It was his client. But well, you're taking your man's at the oven. But I'm like, going, fish like this, this dude's just made a dog's bollocks of this fish, right? Because it's going to be fucking carnage here in a minute. Cut, in, cut into the pastry, right? So obviously the pastry's bollocks, right? Cut into the fish. He goes, chef, he called me over and he gave a fork. And he had that smirk yeah, or yeah, smile yeah. on him, right? As if to say, like, I am the fucking man, right? <laughs> and the two of us started tasting it at Adam, my sous chef. To the day I die, Gareth. I've never eaten a fork full of food like it. Amazing. He blew my mind. It it was it had to be honest to God, right? The coolest thing, one of the coolest things I've ever it's ever happened. And to it me sounds like you're quite as well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm hesitating to use the word simple because it's not simple, obviously. But ah, it, no. you know, I mean, in, in in many aspects, like I suppose all the processes, it it is simple in a way. But, but at you the same to time, nailed but you've got, on every bit of it. You've got to know that the pastry is completely airtight. I mean, if there's any moisture getting out of it at all, you're in big trouble. You know what I mean? Like, so it was completely and utterly steamed within it. It was in there so long, like I mean, I, I I'm talking a couple of hours now. You know what I mean? Like, and he just left, and and I I mean, I genuinely, and you know, your chef head goes into work and say, right, well, granted, like it's going to be, it's well cased, it's going to be fine, it's going to be moist, and then an hour pass, you think, no, 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 hold on a minute, now, like even a hose isn't going to fucking dry, it isn't going to add moisture to that thing in the next minute or two. And I was standing, I was walking around, looked at him, I just says, like, I, when we open this pastry, this is bollocks, and I was like, going, you know, what, what do we have? Like, so we had some. We had some Alaskan king crab that we flew in. We had caviar. We had the whole nine yards. And I thought, right, we have enough fresh fish here. And then we can pull off a fairly element <laughs> rock and roll fish course. 
So I had a contingency plan behind his back, right? But I have to say, it that's was why one he has of, two stars. That's why he had two stars, and it was one of the coolest experiences <clears throat> of my life to work with him. And the two of us really, really genuinely hit it off. We've always stayed in touch. He still works with that client, goes around the world with him. Unbelievable. It was an unbelievable experience, you know. And that and that meso glazed heck with the Juliana vegetables will live long in my memory. It's gas, isn't it, when like somebody says something in the world of food that automatically brings you to yeah. thought, you know. Like yeah. I know I was talking about a steamer basket there. Yeah, it was stuff. just Juliana vegetable just <laughs> And now now all you want to eat miso. I know <laughs> because my nerves were so happy that night, you know what I mean? I was just you know, because when you cook at that level and people are paying thirty five thousand a night, which is what it costs to stay at the condor, you know, when I was there. The place was beautiful. It was so special, but there's no there's no margin for error. Like when people come to us for dinner, like they, they want to remember it forever. You know what I mean? Like and and you know it doesn't necessarily mean that every course has to be groundbreaking. It just needs to be it's correct, precise, yep. neat, tidy, f- flavoursome, and unique. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty cool. And yeah, one that I'll never forget for sure. Cool, so that brings us nicely into, I suppose, our first topic, and it's how you formulate a menu. Yeah. And I, I suppose for me, that's something that's changed over the years, uh, and I think I'm always looking at new ways to evolve how that works. Um, I mean, in the hotel, in the marker, I've got four kitchens and I've five different food outlets, so I've obviously got the restaurant, the bar, I've got the rooftop, then I've got banqueting and I've got room service. So each one of them take a slightly different approach, I suppose, on how I write the menu, but the general rule of thumb, you always start off with the menu that you've just written or you're just coming out of. So for me now, we're just um, we're still in our winter menu and our next menu ahead is spring and we're at the start of January now, so I will be now... I've already kind of started thinking about what's going to be coming onto that menu. And that's one thing that I've certainly changed about my approach to writing menus as I've gotten a little bit further into my career. I don't change as much as I used to. Like, I used to change the whole menu. And it was suicide. I mean, the chefs used to be... All of us used to be... We just could never put the focus and the time and the energy and the detail into each dish that I wanted. So now, and especially now with the new restaurant, um, there's a couple of signature dishes on there that I'm leaving alone. I'm not changing them. The guests are really enjoying them. And I'm not going mad to change them all the time. And and, and your guest probably changes an awful lot. I mean, I'm sure you've got regulars, but what's a regular in the marker? Well, the restaurant in, in, the, in the hotel now, Forbes Street, I'd say about 70% of that is non-resident, which which is a big number for, uh, like if, if you worked in a resort, for example, and you weren't in Dublin City, yeah. you're, it would be the other way around. I'd say it's probably 70 or 80% of your business would be, like when you were in Viewmont, I'm sure yeah. about 70 or 80% of the guests were sleeping in the hotel that night. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's quite the opposite for me. And then I've, the other big thing about the restaurant that I run, it's right in front, literally right in front of the theatre. So a huge volume of business for the early part of our dinner service are people that are going to a show. So that needs to be very mindful on how quick it arrives to the table and it's, you know, super tasty. And also there's value for money to be had there because that guest has probably already spent a couple of hundred quid on tickets. So we need to make sure that we're offering value. Um, 
we used to do it. Used to only do pre-theatre. That's all I used to do in there before uh, our a la carte offering. Um, but now I actually offer an a la carte. A la carte just means that you can buy each course individually. You don't have to lock into three courses at a set price mm. or two courses. You can have come in and have a couple of starters if you want, or you can come in and just have a main. Um, and that's something that's developed over the year and over the years. And so has my menu writing style. But it always, always, always starts with the season. So yeah. what vegetables are at their absolute premium? What meat is at its premium? What fish is at its premium, and then you support that in with all the other larder. That I bet there. I know your favorite season. What go on here? What is it? Autumn. Yeah, do you know it's funny. That also changes. Like you know, yeah. I think when you start coming to the end of the summer, you're sick of cooking all the green veg. Yeah, at the start of the summer, you're nearly doing a cartwheel when you see the first yeah. of the asparagus or the first of the peas yeah. or the first of the you know the purple broccoli has arrived yeah. and. Yeah, I think if you're not a chef, if you're not in that world, you might be thinking to this going, Weirdo. is she all right, man? About <laughs> 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 the first of the asparagus, but yeah. I know when the white asparagus lands, yeah. like it's literally the most joyous of occasions yeah. for chefs. And yeah. and I'm sure for that farmer that grew that asparagus, yeah. when they see them poking because up out of the Yeah, years for them Yeah, man, it's yeah. not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And years ago, I was trying to come up with these dishes that were super complex to... To, to show off that asparagus but now I'm just like well, don't do anything with it just put some holidays with it just with the words alone like I think that spring summer vegetables are nearly the driver oh, yeah, in the amazing. menu whereas whenever you go into the fall the game is the driver so it becomes yeah, yeah. the protein is the driver as opposed to the vegetable being the driver you know and look I think as a chef you really have to understand your guest and I think that's something that I didn't know enough of in my early career because I think you're still trying to find your way and you're still trying to understand and when you do a job like mine where you, you might be trying to impress other chefs and yourself instead of thinking and, who's paying you and food critics and yeah. like you're not actually thinking about the person that's you know and Eating it yeah exactly and I think that's something that comes in time and for any young chef that's listening to this what I would say to you is and I say this to the chefs that work with me now listen to your guest if the guests are telling you that they're loving the experience and maybe there's there's other people within your business that will try and change what you're doing, like the financial controllers and oh, yeah. the money side of the business, which is also very, very important. Yeah, but, like, hold, but hold your court as well. Of course, you have to hold your court. But sometimes it's not about changing the ingredients. It's about changing what you, what you charge. And I think we're at a point in Irish food that, you know, in Ireland, people are very happy to go out and spend five euro on a chicken, right? Mm. Where when you're in France and you go into the supermarket... Chicken is 20 quid. You know, it's very hard to find a chicken for a fiver. <laughs> I was on my holidays over there during the summer yeah. and I went into the supermarket and there was packets of corn-fed chicken legs and they were like 12 50 Yeah. And I was saying to my kids, my wife, I was like, look, you cook around to our local... They won't eat, they won't eat shit, you see. Yeah, well, that, yeah. But, and I think that's been driven by the population that's there, yeah. but the population that's here for a long time is helping the supermarkets drive yeah. the product down. I'll tell you another thing that you'll notice if you're in France as much as I'm in France, mm. you've got to really, really check your produce. Right. It has no shelf life. Right. Because like, they don't use any pesticides. There, it's, a lot of it is just growing organically or whatever yeah. it'll be. There's no big song and dance about it. It's all done properly. They only bring in... And by the way, you could have a blueberry on the menu. It could be like you could have a little individual blueberry back to Alaska. It's one I used to have. It's an, it's an old Lecker van one. I had a pastry chef from there in Boston for years. 
And I had a client as well that just loved that dish when they would come. But in France, when they stop growing in the field down the road, about there's it. no more blueberries. Like, I really need them. And they're looking at you going, there is none. Did you not hear me? Celery, <laughs> did you not hear me? Like, celery is another one. I mean, I, I use, I don't know if I'm weird. I, I use a lot of celery, right? I mean, I, whether it's sofritos or whatever, or foundations or sauce bases or stocks, mirepoix, you name it. But I, I get celery all I, the world. Celery, it's one of the hardest things to find. It'll blow your mind. A blueberry and celery. <laughs> I love France, but sweet Jesus, you know, it's not King Salmon I'm after. Do you know what I mean? It's just a bit of celery and, and blueberries. Yeah, but it caused you carnage, you know. But like, look, anyway, keep going there. Yeah, and I know I've posed the question and how do you formulate a menu, but really it's understanding from a chef's point of view what dining room you have you know, what season you're in. And then about, there'll always be a couple of dishes on the menu that you're going to throw a little bit of flair into. And you, they don't always work. And it comes always comes back to listening to your guests. So if there's a dish that's not working, change it. Yeah. You know, like, it's how, grand. It's grand. exactly, exactly. But yeah. you know, where maybe in my younger years, I might have been like, Oh no, I need to make it better. I need to. No, now I'm just going, Yeah, look, Arthur getting a couple of comments on that now. And I'm, Anyone that's ever worked with me will know that I'll walk out and sit in the restaurant and I'll get the dish cooked, I'll get it brought out to me, I'll eat it, and I'll go, no, do you know what? That dish is exactly how I wanted to eat and maybe it was just that guest didn't like it. Yeah. Or I'll approach, if there's a guest in the restaurant and they really don't like something, I'll go and talk to them. Mm. You know, and if they, I'll find out what was wrong and if we haven't hit the right cooking temperature or whatever, fair enough, then we'll do the service recovery that's required. Um, but if they just didn't like the dish, that's okay. Sometimes somebody will cook something for something. Said something interesting just... there. Every night, even now the Chateau, but when I was in Viewmount House, I sat in the four corners of the room every single day for 10 years. Yeah. And I ate in the restaurant. Towards the end of service, I'd sit with James, the owner, maybe once every month or once every six weeks without fail and let Daniel finish service, feel the music, feel the lights, watch Important. the pro staff. Every single month, give or take a week, without fail, you have to sit in your own dining room and watch how people flow and how they move. The acoustics is incredible. I mean, I might not be the best chef in the country. I've always had a decent reputation, but I tell you what, Tom Devlin in Boston, he had me for years. He drilled into me running a room. Being a head chef is way, way more about than just cooking. I mean, the cooking is the part. You got there because, yeah, you're a good chef. You've done your years, done whatever. And it becomes about so much more than the cooking. If you you don't see a picture that's offline or a bulb that's gone out if you don't sit in the dining room. And it's imperative to the experience. There's nothing worse than a loud room, an echoey room, bright lights, loud music. Ask any waitress or waiter that was in Viewmount for the 10 years as they, and I'd say they would say they wanted to just shoot me between <laughs> the two eyes because it was constantly... What's the music lights? What's the lights like? What's the music like? Is that season? There's, a, I could say, five or six lines. And this isn't to sound egotistical. This is absolutely matter of fact. I'm doing this 30-odd years. You have got to take way more ownership than just what goes on the plate. It has to be from the phone being answered to the car being par parked in the car park to people and you know walking in the front door, the menu board, fingerprints, lights, flour on the table, salt, pepper. I mean, an empty salt and pepper shaker, you should be sacked. 
on the spot the basic kind of stuff mm. not to sound harsh for a chef or whatever to put so much effort into going to the farm going up the cabin going to black lane going here going there then somebody sits you down you reminded me of something and there. salt and pepper's empty I done uh, MasterChef for the first year that the hotel opened and uh, it was the part of MasterChef where you know they bring the they bring the newbies in on MasterChef and they come in and they cook in a professional kitchen and you know I was like oh cool yeah yeah and so these three cooks come in and you know that part of the start where I'm walking through the lobby and oh, you know all that, all that all street right yeah so, look but, at me yeah all, when I was like really you need me to do that yeah, get your yeah, hair yeah. done for that oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we wear that yeah 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 got my hair cut you know made sure the apron was double pressed oh, no but oh, yeah. so all done all of that and, yeah exactly then I went into the kitchen <laughs> and service started and we agreed to do 40 covers or 50 yeah. covers I can't remember what it was for lunch but we ended up getting really busy and we ended up doing about 90 covers oh, no. and Whatever, I can't remember what the starter was. It was uh, something of pasta, I think. They had to hand make the pasta. That was all grand. And then uh, it came to main course. But there was a, a, a guy over on the main course and the dish was a, a seared fillet of sea bass with bouillie base. And I let your man sink. cook it. Yeah, I let him sink, right? Just to let him feel what... I, and I, he, like, he seared the fish perfectly. He cooked the bouillie base, right? The mussels were all closed and uh, oh. the fish was raw, right? So it came to the pass, it looked like a million bucks on this. I said, man, do you want to send that? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I let the waiter take it off the pass. And just before, I went, come back, come back, come back, come back. And I showed you, man. Look at you, you went full Ramsey Hills Kitchen. I didn't, I didn't course, asshole. I didn't course again. <laughs> but I was like, and then afterwards, there was another plate going out that had a load of fingerprints on it. Oh, no. And oh, I, God. again, I pulled it yeah. back and I was like, man, you can't let it go. Look, splitting fingerprints yeah. all over the side of the plate. And I might got a little bit touchy about that. But then when I knew it was going to air, I was like, what are people going to think of me that I'm giving out about fingerprints? But, no. but if you work in a professional kitchen like we do, it's second nature that you wouldn't let a plate go out into the dining room with fingerprints. Any, any viewer that would have a problem with a head chef having a dirty plate or a muscle not open, which, by the way, is a dead muscle that's yeah, going to make yeah, you very, yeah. very sick. No, I, I don't like, mean I was worried about it. But, on, but it, was a, I mean? it was an earlier time. I know. It's, yeah, do you know uh, what I mean? Yeah. And I remember going... I know, I know. But the thing is, right, is a producer can make you look really good or really bad or really in between you know what I mean like the restaurant as well we feed 60 people on the restaurant on every episode right it's ran like it a restaurant looks like from the outside looking in you think it's down about 20 covers because there's only about 16 mic'd up okay now oh, there's okay, cameras yeah, over the room yes. so you've got ambient guests but there's 60 people being fed every single night whether there's corporate guests or people that are involved in the show but you've got to have an ambience in the room but they're all fed. They all come in and you might have four orders, table two, table four, check on, check on, check on. This is a mic table. Check on, check on. This is a mic table. Mic table. Check on, check on, check on. This is a mic table. They rattle you with all the covers at the same time. Mate, I get, because <laughs> that, that's the only, the only part of the show, right, that's a wee, wee bit different to conventional service is I get hit with the room. So when it comes to, I mean, we're veering off here now, but we'll tell, may as well tell this story now that we're here. It took me about three years to to learn how to manage how to do the show, how to manage Stevie. Joe Duffy episode, five hours making raviolis, a layered, like, crushed nut, pine nut, apple, brunoise, calvados, apple, brunoise, half a scallop, layered again into a ravioli. Stevie eats one in the tasting. Don't like it. I looked at him right away. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Stitch up. I was like, they're all done, right? So Stevie's looking over. Whatever whatever it is, anyway, we're, we're the best of pals now, whatever. Anyway, Joe Duffy loves what was Stevie. Wrong with it? 
There was absolutely nothing wrong with it. Stevie just want <laughs> Stevie just wanted me to learn the ropes. If the guest, if the celebs head chef of the day decides they want change to go it. with an opinion, you got to change it. So from eight o'clock in the morning, the tastings around four. It's all, all the ravs were made. All the ravs were made. There was sixty-eight raviolos made. Right, there was one raviolo a person, and then there was this like you know frothy sauce over it or whatever it was. Joe says, "Do you know what? Now that you say it, Stevie, I kind of agree." So I had a half an hour then to re-roll the pasta, right? Luckily, I had enough pasta, but we had to start getting the film. Searing scallops, drying sear, and doing the whole nine yards. So then I just kicked into, I'm now the head chef of Umount now, and I got Stevie Anto from Mr. Fox. He, he was working on the show at the time. Everybody get in, get it ready. But I went down to the fridge and at the end of service. So they, they throw, I, I say to John Healy, I goes, look, John, we're not going to be ready. John smiles. Philip Camp, the boss, comes in. He's like, "Go, good show, lads. Best of luck. I'm going out to the truck. And I'm like, I need an hour or whatever. They just smile at you. You're on starters. You've had all day. Tough shit. Then they turn on the TVs. And you can hear everybody in the room having pre-dinner drinks. And you know when you start hearing all the, the commotion and the, your heartbeat starts <laughs> to rise, right? You know that they're about to come in. Then John Healy goes in the TV in the middle. So the four big, huge 60-inch plasmas in the room with a 10-second delay. So he starts bringing people in. And you're looking at it going, I'm not ready. You can Your hand starts to shake. Joe Duffy's having a glass of wine with Gerald Keane. It was a cook-off. He's like, you all right there, chef? I was like, go fuck yourself, Joe. I'll be fine, right? And you get the head down, you get it ready. I went into the cold room that night, right? And I sat down. And honestly, you could see my jacket moving. Like my, my, I looked down at my heart and my chef jacket was moving. And I just went, Jesus, everybody thinks that I have a good life. Like, this is fucking horrible. This is really, really stressful. Next season then comes by and says, right, I'm going to be ready, going to be ready. But it took me a few years to get into that rhythm. I'd like to know who done the ordering. How did you have enough scallops to... No, no, no. Uh, well, we, we, the only, we all do the order. I look after starters. The celebrity writes the menus. Orla Broderick, who does a lot of work, writes Nevin's book. She's been on TV for years. She's amazing. She's the food <clears> producer. So the only part of the show, obviously, we know who's coming on. We have no involvement in the menu. That tasting that we do is the absolute only time that the three of us have any opinions on the on, on the that dish. A? That's meant to be at 3.30 or 3 o'clock, right? It's never before 4 or half 4. It's scheduled for like an hour. It takes an hour and a half minimum. Without a shadow of a doubt, Something on a good day, I've got 20 minutes from the end of filming that segment to the first diner eating. So you've got seven and a half or eight hours of work. So I learned over the years, right? You get a menu, you do the order, you send it in. Now what you have to think about as well is you look at it, right? And you think, right, Jesus, Nathan Carter's got chicken wings, got this, that and the other or whatever it may be. And you're looking at it going, what's going to be bad with that dish? Like it goes, you know, like I can't have any say on it. I was like, well, that's going to be too dry. This is going to be whatever. I'm going to need limes. We might add a little Asian slaw to that. So you order a little bit extra because you, you actually put yourself a month ahead. You put yourself at the tasting. You look at the ingredients. You look at how they want to cook it because that's not going to change. Stephen, Louise and I are going to make it the way they want to make it. You look at it and you say, I know what Stephen. I know he won't like that. He's definitely going to want to add this. So as the did year, you get him back? Oh, did I? <laughs> Absolutely. But as the, year, as the years go on then, right? Stop stitching. I realized... We eat the starter first. So I go over to Stevie and I just say, listen, big balls. Here's the crack, right? I don't have any more of this. I don't have any more of that. 
feel Steve free. Stump. Feel free <laughs> to throw me under the body. He laughs, right? So then Stevie come over and goes, Gaza, don't stitch me up today. Yeah, man. yeah, because you've gone too fast. Gone, no, the goes, no, 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 Stevie. I goes, I'm going to get you back. He's an unbelievable cook, by the way. Stevie is unbelievable. I have to say, you know, Top chef. He, was, he, was, he was tough on me at the start or whatever. He's only interested though, in making a good show. I'm only interested in making a good show, and so is Louise. We want the celeb to get five stars. We couldn't be more competitive on the show. And John Healy's obviously the, the glue then and keeps it all together. From the minute we start in the morning, we are we are at five stars. And we're devastated if anybody doesn't get it. We're always happy with a four. But anything anything below that, we are we're upset. You know? Dishing it out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Cully and Sully. Now is the perfect time to dig into a Cully and Sully risotto. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. Dishing it out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Cully and Sully squashed veggie soup is in season and the perfect warming meal. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. So there you go. How, how do you, there's a question for you. How do you formulate a menu? We've told you how to uh, do everything but formulate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we got to throw in the stories. But look, in a nutshell. But really, it's you, about it's about understanding your ingredients. Understanding and the season. The season and yeah. then really cooking for the type of guests that you're going to eat. So yeah. to think about that from a home point of view, which I think probably a lot of people that listen to this show want to know is, like, plan your week ahead. Plan your, like... Don't be just walking into the shop blind and going, oh yeah, there's munch too, I'll get that. Oh, there's some sweet corn, I'll grab that. Oh, I'm going to grab a chicken. Have a little bit of a think about it. Yeah. And if you want to make your food more delicious, which is ultimately everybody's goal, I think, it's about putting a little bit of thought into it. Yeah. And trying to cook within the seasons. And all that means is that does BBC do an amazing season guide, I think. Or do you have one up Borbia or brilliant. Borbia, if, have, if, you, if you Google Borbia, they're amazing. They're, yeah, all of that. They like, always give you the list of what's in season. Yeah, and look, when you're looking at those lists, look at the ones in Ireland and England. There's no point looking at one in Australia. Well, Ireland and England is... is, is it's where it's at for it's us. It's, right? in a, it's in the same climate. Zone. Yeah. But look, again, there's no point in me rehashing the same thing you've just said. I mean, I think chefs have a duty of care to farmers yep. and a duty of care... To growers, to, to growers, producers at every level that aren't just farmers, but anybody that's growing stuff or rearing animals or doing whatever. But like that, I suppose it's got to start with the ingredient. I mean, I'd never lived in Longford. I'd, I'd come from Boston. I'd never lived in that neck of the woods, you know, for four, three and a half, four months before Viewmount House opened back in 2008. Every day, James would give me a list or think of somebody else. And I went to the farm, went to Mary Kelly, she had a soft cheese. I gotta find a way of that going into the menu. Jack York, aptly named, was my cabbage grower. David Burns was my sweet corn grower. There's only four or five of them in the country, maybe less now. And Shirley O'Halloran was my egg girl. And it was so on and so forth. Ken Moffat, as you well know, Black Lion, he was my guy for ducks. And you find the ingredient and you work backwards. You don't, as a chef, if you're sitting in a room and in, the internet opened, Epicurious or whatever whatever site you're looking at or blah, 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 and you're writing a menu from Timbuktu and then go and trying to find ingredients, you're an amateur. You shouldn't be cooking. Take your jacket off, 
hang your head in shame and stop cooking. You have got to go out, meet fishermen, meet farmers, meet producers and use your craft and your skill thereafter to web together a menu that your customers are going to pay for, that you're going to reach a pinnacle in flavour and, and create. And if there's any creativity in you, you literally can make lemonade from lemons. You know what I mean? Like you'll, you'll always find a way of making and manipulating an ingredient in an ideal world, you have to manipulate it in no, no way whatsoever and you can rock and roll and that means looking at the likes of fish and so on. But for the most part, you will be able to create a brilliant dish. And there's nothing better when you've got a full restaurant on a Saturday night or it's a communion in April or May and Shirley's in with her eldest making their confirmation or your corn guy's in celebrating his, his wedding anniversary and so on and so forth or you're down with Dee for dinner and you see two or three of your suppliers on my menu. Jesus, that's what Gaz does with his sweet corn. That's what Gary does with his duck from Thornhill and so on and so forth. You know, The other, the other thing I suppose it's worth mentioning as well, we're part of a, a community called Eurotalk which is a, yeah. a chef's and produce our lead community in Ireland. It's a European-led community, but we're part of the Irish arm of it. Um, and that's a that's an area where we hang out and get to spend time with like-minded people. So we we've x amount of events a year. We run a young chef competition, which takes about six months, and we also do food awards where. Us as a group of chefs, we pick producers from around the country and that's an area where I'll always learn something new or I'll see lo- something new. And the a huge part of the six months when I'm doing the Young Chef competition, I get to look and judge 30-odd We've young had some chefs. of the best of days yeah, in that. I think it's something that, uh, as a collective community, we've gotten better at. Um, Hugely. Like, you know, I think... And I, I, I only said this fairly recently to somebody like, I think it's hard in Ireland now to go out and have a really poor meal. Mm. Like where if I think back when I came home from Australia, which was in 06, 07, there was still some very shaky cooking going on across the island of Ireland. Yeah. But now from, you know, it's very unusual if you go out and get something that's very poorly cooked. Social media has a big help and hand in that, I think. Yeah, maybe. Uh, because... People were posting pictures of dinners around or whatever. I mean, who wants to be humiliated? You know, not that we always cooked at a level that you'd imagine that they're taking pictures for for the other reason. But it's very, very easy to but be called I also out for being bad. As I think Ireland has done a better job marking itself as a food destination and not just somewhere to play golf and drink Guinness. I think now... What's wrong with playing golf and nothing, drink Guinness? Nothing. Two wonderful things that can happen here. Watch Would your you, tongue. Yeah, yeah. Just, well, you relax you just there, you? Down. Yeah, you're relaxing. No, but boys. For, for years and years, like Ireland marketed Ireland for yeah. somewhere to play golf and drink in the street, where there's loads of other amazing things. Now you can come here and eat in some of the best restaurants in the world, not just in Europe, Hashtag in the world. Street. Yeah, but <laughs> you know, like if you think, hold on, we a men- how, we I gotta say something. We like, mentioned them last how week. How many week of the country have you converted to caviar and truffles? <laughs> Yeah, How many? Yeah, 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 one or two. You should hang your head, James. <laughs> Stop sitting in here scoffing about <laughs> golf and Guinness, and you're dishing out caviar. Something wrong with that? <laughs> Are you saying when you come in, you don't eat caviar? No, but I think I think what like what you do as a as a chef, certainly in the higher end restaurant, and it's something that's quite important. That and this is something that I learned about my style of cookery. Yeah, I'm heavily involved in Euro Talk. I was the head of it for the last good few years but I also appreciate that there's an international guest staying in the hotel that I work mm. in that want to have food experiences and 
I give you caviar, but I serve it with Bally McKenney potatoes and, and creme fraiche and chives. Yeah. And you sit in the restaurant where I work and you have the street, like, I'm, I'm, I'm defending myself here. Like, <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like, that, that's the thing. Yeah, and I think I that's where you kind of you know, go. You know I love the caviar, yeah, brother. Well, it's all good. <laughs> but th- that's the thing where you walk away. Well, hopefully you walk away and yeah. go, well, I was in Ireland and they gave me caviar with potatoes. Yeah. Not to be cliche about it, but that's really cool. Yeah. Now, we also give you a little yeah, Bellini you know, with it yeah, as well. Yeah. But, you know, or we celebrate the fact that you're getting amazing smoked salmon and amazing oysters. And we have the best cheese in the world. Not oh, just, yeah. Not just in Europe. We have the best cheese in yeah. the world. I never used bar parmesan in dishes, but as on a cheese on a board. In Viewmount, there was never oh, anything other than an Irish cheese. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I there's bring, loads of chefs. I doing still it. bring Irish cheese to France, and I, and I bet you they freak out when you get there. <laughs> but I think, like, as a, as a, go back to the point that I was making, and it, I think it leads lovely into our next point that we'll quickly wrap up this part on is the the travel piece. So, yeah, like, tra- what does travel mean to a chef? It's everything. It's every single thing to a chef that understands food and understands ingredients. And when you're on your holidays or you're away with work or you are moving around the country you take notes of everything that you eat. And I think that's the one thing that this show is, it, well, I think this show is kind of people find interesting is that everybody eats three, four times a day. Mm. And the ones that kind of dial into that early enough kind of go, all right, if I really think about where my ingredients are from and I think about, then everything's going to get better about my food. Mm. And it's something that sometimes worries me around this time of year where people are talking about health food that, you know, you need to pull back, take carbs out of your diet or take bread out of your diet. But just stop. Yeah. Stop. Like, you know, just be conscious of the amount of calories that you're going to eat every day and then you decide of how you're going to get them in. And if you need to lose a little bit of weight, eat a little bit less and move a little bit more. I think that's what's important. Stop putting food pho- phobias into your kids and to your household about, oh, we can't eat butter and we can't eat bread and we can't eat this. Stop it. Stop all of that. Mm. Buy the best ingredients that you can afford. And tear into it. Yeah, tear into it. And just, you know, don't eat too much. Yeah. Most of the ah, thing yeah, is yeah, about yeah. people overeating. Yeah. That's where... Yeah. Well, you know, por- portion control is a, is a massive huge. thing. huge. Yeah. I filled in for you on the Pat Kenny show and... Um, Charlie McConnell, I think it's come up now big time in the. I, mean, I was saying, I was saying that Ivan Yates was filling in for Pat. Uh, the A team was on holidays together last week, <laughs> so Ivan and I had got out the crack actually. And that morning, it came out in the media that Minister McConnell, who's from Donegal, had said like, "Oh, you know, rations need to start dishing out smaller portions." And I'm like, "Well, first of all." Charlie, watch where you're going around Donegal because that's the last thing the boys up there want to be hearing as they're getting less spuds on their plate. But on a on a serious end, end of it as well, um, don't be putting it on restaurants and chefs. You know, like people are maybe putting on weight. It's their own personal choices. You know, chefs and restaurateurs, subject uh, to we're, they're all out there. I mean, if you're going to a carvery and you're getting a big plate and, you know, do you want all the veg, you want whatever, and there's a chef in there, horse it in. I yeah. mean, I'll tell you now, if you have a load of boys coming off a site here at the children's hospital, they go into one of the bars for a carvery, they're burning up calories. They'll, they'll eat whatever you're throwing at them. Right. And fair enough, they're burning calories. You know, it's on the consumer to turn around and say, one spud, 
half a spoon of carrots, half a spoon of cabbage. Don't be putting that on the hotel. Don't be putting that on the rest. And an extra two slices of beef. Yeah, I saw that. I saw. I saw that on Twitter. I saw that on Twitter. JP McMahon turned on and goes, I don't know where there's any waste on uh, in an ear or whatever. And I, I felt like I was like, no harm, JP. They're not fucking talking about an ear, big boy. I've seen the plates down there. A splash of buttermilk, a fucking Benweed, and what? A couple of slices of goose, would you go away? And I can say that too, because JP's a buddy. You must be joking. We're chatting about a carvery. Okay, so I think that wraps up a wee bit of a chat about the professional behind the scenes. If there's anything that listeners, I mean, we have dishing at goloudnow.com for our listener questions. We're going to get to a few of them now in a minute. But if there's anything about the behind the scenes or, you know, what we questions do. what you might want to ask. Yeah, th- things that you want to ask or things that you're curious about. Um, whether it's resorts, whether it's private chateaus. I mean, I suppose between Gareth and I, we've kind of worked in every every sort of shape and size of a of a place over the years. Um, we, we love getting in the queries and the questions, so please feel free to do so. Dishing it out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Cully and Sully's squashed veggie soup is in season and the perfect warming meal. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. So that leads us nicely into the next little segment and it's one that I look forward to every week and it's the culinary conundrums or the questions that we get from my listeners. So Russell, what have we got for us? So we've got a couple of questions here this week. Uh, the first one comes from Stephen. If you boys were writing your own version of Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, what would be an experience that would have to make the final cut of the book? Keep up the good work, thanks. As some of the best experiences you know, maybe from the young free and single days, like you'd love to, you'd love to write about them or whatever. And and Bourdain certainly did that. I think that's where that book really, really blew out. I mean, there's the famous ending. I think it might be the first chapter, like the girl that got married, and there she is with somebody else outside the kitchen on literally her her wedding day. And I think a story like that though only only garners legs and becomes a big thing and something that people want to read when the person writing it is off note I mean whether me or Gareth are at that level yet or we could be writing some crazy stories I'm not so sure but one thing I will say is this is it was it was the most on the money documentation real life of behind the line of being a chef at its at its place and time La Hals is not the name Le, Les, Les Hals Les yeah, I ate there yeah Les Hals in New York was where Anthony Bourdain was he, he stopped co- cooking quite young I think he was like 35 or something when he stopped cooking well he he, he got, went he, into a f- he got was the New Yorker that uh, posted the letter that he wrote he sent in a letter to the New Yorker I believe and the editor picked him up As brought him in then he started writing a few wee bits and pieces, whatever it was. I mean, he was a wordsmith. He was unbelievable. You know what I mean? And what a what a sad ending, ending and a, such a huge loss. You know what I mean? Like he 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 was revered the world over by chefs because the guy that maybe isn't the executive chef, the guy that isn't the head chef or the sous chef or isn't on TV or isn't doing great things. Anthony Bourdain more spoke about all of us in a way that when you go to America, he talks an awful lot about being on the line. He talks an awful lot about a lot of the South American boys. And if anybody has ever cooked in America, 90% of your kitchens is, you know, Guatemalans, Brazilians, Mexicans. They're, you might have an Irish, English, American or other executive chef or culinary director. And then there, everybody else is known as line cooks. And they are... Are they chef's parties? They are machines. They're just on the line. They don't want to do anything different to what you're showing. They're a dream 
to have working for you. <clears throat> Their work ethic is like no other. Maybe the Irish. I mean, we have a good work ethic. They're unbelievable. He shows unbelievable affection for his team. Unbelievable affection for chefs in general. And I think he really, really resonated with every cook at every level. And that's why he was so revered. Everybody has a kitchen confidential in them if they have the nerve to tell the truth. Yeah, but I think what, what, what he went on to write about was just the challenge of he was facing through moving through different stages of his career and trying to turn a book and make money and, you know, working in serving the wealthiest people in New York at the time. And then his line staff, as he was talking about, were on minimum, minimum wage and you're working these mad hours. And, you know, I suppose that's what, you know, when you think back, when I think back to my career, that's also something that's kind of changed quite a lot is the amount of hours that people are working. Like, no more of the days now where you're working 70, 80, 90 hours a week, where back then, that's all I was doing. You know, you know I came back from Boston, right? I went to the Galway Bay Hotel in Salt Hill. I met an unbelievable man there, Dan Murphy. He's the general manager of the Galway Bay. Bobby Bell, old school dub. He was the executive chef in the hotel. And anyway, Dan hired me. And I remember the first day I was in, I sat with Bobby. And I'm in the chef's office. And, you know, Bobby, you know, big panel of chefs of Ireland, boy, ran a really solid hotel and kitchen, right? And I remember he turned around and said to me, he says, look, your holidays every year, 29 days. And I started to laugh at him, right? And he goes, what's so funny? And I went, what do you mean 29 days? He goes, just, let's, let's go to six weeks off. What are you on about? And he goes, yeah, like your bank holidays, your 21 days holidays, and then there's bank holidays. It's got to 29 days. And, and I went... Tell me the truth, Bobby. Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, Chef, that's it's there in black and white or whatever. But I had just come from Boston, right? Where if I had Mammy coming out or Pierce or Kevin, my brothers or a buddy or whatever, I would work normally a six day week, five or six day week. I would work a seven day week to get a day or two off. There was no holidays. No, I had no, I was in such a tuned in, like drilled in working, head down, doing whatever. But I had, there was no holidays. What do you mean there was no holidays? I, no holidays. I mean, I, I got no holidays. Why? You just didn't. That's strange now, was it? Well, I don't know, but I got none. None. Well. None. And I, and like if I would work a seven-day week if I wanted an extra day off. Now, by the way, I loved the owners that I had and they paid me well and I had a great time and I did whatever. You had your days off every week. Like, it was nearly always the two days there's off. Your, there's your first chapter, in. Yeah. And that was it, though. I remember I remember looking at Bobby and I was like going, this is fucking brilliant. It's 29 days off a year. And I actually, and I did. Like, that's what I got. It was a brilliant place to work. It was the first job back in Ireland. I started Valentine's Day 2005. Spent a few years there. And it was just such, but how crazy is that like that there I was, what, 25 or 26, whatever age I was, and holidays or time off, I thought he was telling me a joke. <laughs> that first chapter is very good already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The next question is, actually, there's two questions on the same topic here, so I'll read them both out. Firstly, from Catherine Ryan, who says, Gary has mentioned several times when giving a recipe that he specifically said to season with white pepper and I want to know how you decide when cooking a recipe whether to use white or black and Niall has also gotten in touch says Gareth always says pepper so I'm guessing he uses black I'm wondering is it a northern thing as to why Gary always uses white because I always use white too and I got that from my nana who's from Tyrone No, uh, I say white pepper simply because I feel there's a far better depth of flavour to white. Now, 
black has its place. There's 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 lots of things like I'm very specific. Black pepper is on steaks. It's on meats. Uh, it's on duck or whatever, um, and many other things. I mean, I'd finish a lot of dishes. Like nearly every single pasta dish, always I would finish it with black pepper, parmesan, so on. But I feel I, I'm a big pepper lover. Um, I love the balance of heat that white pepper gives off. Obviously, there's no color uh, distortion as well, which is, but. It's not really anything to do with the visual for me. It's all about the flavor. And white pepper just gives a balance. It's a lot more even all the way. And it it is simply nothing other than the fact that it's a it's a better flavor flavorsome pepper than black. Uh, in my opinion. <laughs> in your very humble opinion. Thank you, Catherine and Niall, for those questions. And a final one here from Brendan and Sligo. Uh, hi lads, love the podcast. I want to be a bit more adventurous in my cooking this year and plan to do a couple of wow dishes for my friends and family. I've never cooked a whole fish like turbot or John Dory before. Have you any tips or recipes? Yeah, well, if you've never cooked turbot or dory, I would say start with turbot because it's less forgiving than dory. Dory is a trickier fish to cook whole because it's much more delicate. Um, the problem is with uh, turbot is that it's quite expensive so I would tell you to buy like a two or a three kilo one and for me I would either cook it in the oven under a really hot grill or I would cook it on the barbecue so buy one of those uh, fish basket buy one of them and then cook it as just very very simply score it with a knife uh, season it really well with some uh, rock salt and some pepper either black or white, whatever you have, and then uh, drizzle it with a little bit of uh, vegetable oil and then you get your barbecue as hot as you can and you're going to grill it on one side for five or six minutes. You're going to turn it over and grill it on the other side for five or six minutes. And then what you want to do is take uh, the point of a knife or a cocktail stick and the fish should be just starting to come off the bone. So if you try and push the flesh away and it's still really solid, it just means that you're going to cook it even longer. The wonderful, forgiving thing about a piece of turbot is the skin actually acts as like a protective layer for the flesh. So it is an, it is a type of fish that you can actually give it an awful lot of heat. Mm-hmm. Some people don't like to eat turbot skin. I think if it's cooked really, really hot, it actually goes lovely and crispy and it's delicious to eat. Yeah. And I think that's a nice, simple way to enter into the world of cooking a whole piece of fish. Uh, cooking a piece of John Dory, there's a little bit of a different skill, uh, but I'd say start by cooking off your piece of turbot um, and just make sure it's cooked. Serve it with a wonderful little lemon butter sauce or, uh, you know, even a little bit of olive oil, one part one part lemon juice, three parts olive oil, because it, it will take that type of flavour. Um, and that's it. And don't do much else to it. Just That'll give you an understanding of what you've just done. I mean, you will see recipes that are going to tell you to put tomato with it or you know, different flavourings, but I would say to start out with, really understand hot heat and cooking it till it's just coming off the bone and then enjoy. He's spot on there, yeah. It is a very tough skin to eat, but if you barbecue it, it has a white skin in the underbelly, which is too lathery. You won't yeah. be able to eat that, but the sort of greener or greyer skin on the top, that bursts and chars really lovely actually so if you get a good layer of the vegetable oil and the reason you say vegetable oil too is it doesn't distort the flavour of the fish olive oil is too strong for fish and it has a f- higher flash point as well so it's not going to go on fire as quick whatever it be and uh, yeah but go with the smallest turbot you get your hands on yeah for sure and as, as Gareth says almost like chatting about the um, puff pastry and the miso heck earlier the skin of the turbot actually is a real 
encases it and it actually give it'll give you more time than what you actually need and if it's the first time doing it you need time because you'll be panicking the dory will go <laughs> too quickly trout is another one where you just um take out the eyes and slit it from below the jaw all the way to the tail scoop out the guts take a teaspoon under a slowly running cold tap and you'll you'll see one wee blood vessel running down the spine of the rainbow trout. Use a teaspoon to scrape that as the water's coming down. Take about two minutes, two or three scrapes, the full length of the spine, and that'll clear away all blood. And you've now washed out the total insides. And then dry it really well with paper towels or kitchen towels. And uh, what Gareth said then, salt, black pepper, vegetable oil, and put it in your fish cage. Rainbow trout is absolutely beautiful, grilled, grilled whole. And then again, watercress or rocket leaves, lemon juice, olive oil, black pepper, and salt. And that's a beautiful little salad just with fresh fish and a big, big wedge of lemon on the side. Big glass of wood. <laughs> And Giddy sunshine up. ideally. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Handy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for those questions. Do keep them coming in to us. Dishing at goloudnow.com. Okay, so that's us done. Another episode of Dishing It Out, a Go Loud original brought to you by Cully and Sully. And big thanks to the guys at Cully and Sully. It's been fantastic working with them, getting the podcast out there. Like and subscribe wherever you get your pods and questions to dishing at goloudnow.com. We love getting them. It creates good conversation in the studio here. And tune in next week. Dishing It Out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins. A Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Coley and Sully. Deliciously fresh, tastes like homemade ingredients you find in your kitchen. Go Loud. Sounds better with us.